0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, in the wake of ongoing freedom movements, are Canadians becoming flag-phobic? Rescue efforts continue following a Russian missile strike on a crowded shopping center in central Ukraine. freelance journalist Matthew Best is in Ukraine. He'll join us to talk about what's happening. And the CMHC says unless major new policy changes occur at the federal, provincial, and municipal levels, Ontarians might as well abandon any hope of ever buying a house. It's kind of frightening. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml to begin with uh we're heading up towards uh, canada day and uh well we all know what happened in ottawa of course our nation's capital in february and people will be descending upon the nation's capital as they always do on canada day but there is a warning this year uh, from Ottawa officials, that illegal activity will not be tolerated during the Canada Day festivities. City is looking to avoid a repeat of that uh, freedom convoy, as they called it, uh, occupation that took down. Here's acting chief of police Steve Bell.
1: We've developed options for multiple scenarios. We're reaching out to our policing partners to gather the resources necessary. Multiple police services, including the Ontario Provincial Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, are coming forward with support to our efforts. While we're receiving support to stop this plan, we've had to take unprecedented measures to ensure every officer is available and police member is deployed.
0: So you're gonna see a lot of Canadian flags on Canada Day and uh, in the past, of course, that was a symbol of patriotism, et cetera, et cetera. But the Canadian flag has taken on a bit of a different meaning over the last uh, couple of months, especially, uh, and it's all because of, uh, of the insurrection that went on in the nation's capital not so long ago. Uh, We look at it differently. People that are waving the flag right now, you have to ask yourself, are are they doing that because they love our country or is it a symbol of protest, which is exactly what they were doing in Ottawa back in February? Almost a a flag phobia uh, that uh, many Canadians have developed right now. Joining us to talk about this phenomenon is uh, Derek Foster. Derek is an associate professor at Brock University in the Department of Communication, Pop Culture and Film. And uh, Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time this morning. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about this piece. And, and I, I got to tell you, I, I read this yesterday, and I, some of your, your comments about this, and I feel, yeah, that's that's the way I feel about this, too. I get the sense, and I, I know an awful lot of people I've talked to you know, since February, really, are, they're almost angry at the fact that, that these people that are protesting almost co- have co-opted the Canadian flag and made it their symbol as opposed to the symbol of, of the country that we love.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because canada has traditionally i mean it's a stereotype but we've always been a little bit more low-key in our uh declaration of patriotism national identity pride and so forth so we're we're really used to not seeing the same traditional everyday in your face display of the flag that we might see in other places like say the united states where uh, I remember going years ago and thinking, wow, the size of one's patriotism can be seen uh, by the size of one's flag, right? The bigger, the better. Uh, and in, in Canada, we we don't see a lot of that quantitatively uh, unless it's on a special occasion like, say, Canada Day or exceptional other things like uh, World Cup celebrations when we see uh-huh. the flags of many countries, including Canada, if we're lucky enough to to get there.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I can remember years ago when, I guess it was the Salt Lake City Olympics where Canada won the gold medal, and everybody was ecstatic. And I went for a walk later that evening, and of course, everybody was driving by, honking their horns, and there were Canadian flags waving over the cars. And that, that's a great sign of patriots says, boy, we're really proud of our team. You see that now, and the first instinct you got is, those, those, look at those protesters.
2: Yeah, I remember the same thing when the Blue Jays won the first ever uh, championship of the mm-hmm. uh, you know, baseball, right? Because it, they were Canada's team. So people were displaying the Canadian flag and you recognize that that was uh, celebratory, right? And I, I think that's the traditional idea of Canada. Uh, when we have these special occasions, we we, were celebrating the thing that, uh, you know, announces us to the world and we're not, uh, traditionally used to doing so we're much more reticent in doing that all the time so it comes out on these special occasions and what what we've seen now is yeah it was also a special occasion right but a different sort of one uh in February when uh it was this uh the the convoy and and they were using it as a uh it was kind of a sign of protest uh, to some but to others it was at the same time i guess a declaration of their particular pride but it it takes on a different meaning in that context because it's pride if you believe in uh, a certain set of values right a certain ideology as opposed to it being inclusive so uh it that's the real big shift i think it's 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 moving away a little bit from celebration to a uh, little bit more of an angry uh, sign, a little bit more, uh, well, a lot more actually, uh, antagonistic, and that's not what we're used to seeing.
0: Well, as you mentioned in the piece here, we have seen it as a collapse of the flag as a symbol of national pride and national identity into a national, nationalistic symbol. Uh, and this is unfamiliar You're right this is this is un-canadian of us i mean we don't usually see these sorts of things where we are pretty low-key but are we just mimicking our, our american cousins who seem to do this and you know I, I, even the the february insurrection in ottawa very, very similar uh, to what happened on January 6th in Washington, of course, uh, you know, when they, they tried to overthrow the results of that election. Saw a lot of American flags being waved back and forth, and these are the people that they call themselves patriots. And and I guess they, they wave that flag to kind of reinforce that idea that I'm the real patriot here, not these people here that are are governing us right now, it's me
2: yeah well i mean there's this is also consistent with a, a much more long-standing debate or controversy about what it means to be canadian right uh i mean there there isn't that same tradition in the united states they don't question who they are they announce it we're and i mean that's a stereotype but in canada we're we're constantly questioning who we are and and how we should represent ourselves in part because uh, we we have traditionally also taken pride in the fact that we are a fragmented uh, multicultural country, that uh, we don't have a complete or a unifying or a strong identity that we can take for granted in the same way. But because of that, there's been also a longstanding, I mean, relatively recent uh, idea that maybe Canadians are becoming more American. Like, you know in terms of their their mental posture like uh maybe becoming a little less modest a little less mild mannered uh in in the way in which we traditionally think of ourselves and, and becoming a little bit more stereotypically american so i think what's happened is uh events like uh in january in the united states and then february here uh it just really amplifies that it becomes a way of condensing these these long-standing debates or questions uh, and really, making them uh, I- impossible to ignore.
0: But is there an unintended consequence here uh, as a result of this and and the the, the changing of, of symbols and and the, the meaning of those that some Canadians may feel as if, well, you know what, I don't want to wave the flag now because I don't want those people to think I'm like that.
2: Oh, uh, I, I think absolutely you could say that. But the flag in Canada has a, <laughs> it has a much different sort of connotation than it does in say the United States like we we don't we don't announce the flag or or declare it in the same sort of way like uh I mean we actually it's just really ironic in fact that uh at around the same time as as these events were taking place in February um in Ottawa that's when we actually have Flag Day in Canada but yeah. most people have no knowledge of flag day our national celebra- celebration of the day when we uh had our actual uh our flag announced as our, our national symbol most people have no clue that it's on february 15th because it's it's not as central to uh our our idea of of who we are unless of course say you're traveling around europe and there's that traditional idea of putting the canadian flag on your backpack uh which is i think uh a very specific instance of us announcing ourselves, which is really curious because there's also uh, the long-standing idea that some Americans might have announced themselves as Canadian to just to avoid the traditional uh, connotation or the confrontation that might happen. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really funny. We don't, we don't have a pledge of allegiance in Canada where, you know, at the beginning of that says I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. So we have a much more open ended uh, attitude towards uh, what I say are are forms of uh, and expressions of national identity and because of that, when it becomes nationalistic, uh, which is much more of a us versus them idea, uh, then that becomes uh, a lot more uncomfortable and and that that idea of nationalism is something that uh, is is much more uh, yeah it's, it's it's an awkward fit for uh, for Canadians sense of who they are
0: uh the the history is is important here you're absolutely right it was 1965 i think it was in february 15th that's when the canadian parliament adopted this flag and as you mentioned we didn't even have one officially then we had the red ensign which was kind of a you know it had the british flag there kind of up in the corner and the rest of it just kind of symbolizing canada and boy i i was just a kid at the time but i remember the debate about what the flag should look like, and and it got pretty raucous for quite a long time before they finally settled on this one. Uh, so there is a bit of a history, but you're right. I mean, I, the Americans even have a name for their flag. It's Old Glory, you know. And and as you say, it's in the Pledge of Allegiance. We just kind of accepted that. Okay, I guess we need a flag. Uh, you know, we've been around for almost a hundred years
2: now. Let's get to go on on that. Uh, yeah, but- it's it's remarkable that we exist for that long without saying, oh, we need something that sums up or represents who we are. But even then it's hilarious. I I mean if you if you think along those lines, uh most Canadians even probably know what the meaning of the stars and the stripes are on the United States flag. But if you ask people what is the meaning of the Canadian flag, uh you're probably going to get as many answers as uh or as many question marks even as you are people who you're talking to because there is no concrete symbolism to it
0: no exactly other than of course
2: yeah the fact that there's a maple leaf and oh maple leaves are you know yeah they're a byproduct of our landscape and our geography and so forth but that's that's a historical accident really
0: yeah because they were considering the beaver at one time instead of the maple leaf so i'm happy with what they've got here but do we have as much pride in the flag as 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 we used to because of of what's happened over the last couple of months especially i mean because i do see you know driving up to cottage country up north or whatever I see Canadian flags from time to time. And unfortunately, they're usually on the same pole as an F. Trudeau flag, so that kind of tells me where their patriotism really is. But I think that just soils the reputation of the flag, and I think it, it disrespects it. But that's the mindset of, an, an I shouldn't say, an awful lot of people. But I, I think what you're suggesting here is that we're an angrier, uh, more uptight society these days. But that's not just Canadians. That's everybody, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think so. And, and I mean, uh, a little bit of the... The context uh, has to be really uh, t- carefully taken into account here because it's not that every Canadian feels this way. Of course, uh, there's lots of people who still fly the flag, people who have flown it before the protest and flown it afterwards, and and it, it does it's not flown together with other symbols, et cetera. Uh, but uh, so not everyone is feeling flag phobic. But I, like I came across instances of people. Uh, online in February who were talking about their reluctance to even buy Olympic themed clothing because of what was happening at the time so uh when when you see those connections rippling out into into other uh, other things such as even merchandise uh then yeah it it really just talks about uh, I think uh, an amplification of this uh historical reluctance to uh to display these things but uh, yeah I mean, if you if you look at it on a per capita basis we we probably have a lot less flagpoles on um, canadian residences than than other countries uh, certainly than the united states so uh those that make the effort to do this uh i'm i mean yeah it's uh it's a it's a really funny thing i, I think people are proud of being canadian but that that pride in in flying or displaying the flag um, might not have uh, as clear or as uh, as indelible a connection as it, it might once have had.
0: Well, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, I guess, because I'm, I'm patriotic. I love it. I, we fly a flag at our place and, and have for over 10 years. I had nothing to do with what went on recently, uh, but I think it, the flag for most of us, symbolizes the fact that, yeah, we've all come together. This is, this is what unites us. You know, we're all here in Canada because we love this country. Uh, but I get the sense that some people have kind of taken over that mindset now. Some of them were the protesters, of course, a lot of them. And, and the, they're, to, to them, the flag means I'm more Canadian than you are. And, and, and that's not what the, the, that, that flag was intended or any flag was intended to be. But I think it, it upsets Canadians to know that that kind of attitude exists out there.
2: Uh, yeah i mean you're describing it perfectly well i think uh what we're talking about here are are two different discourses right even when you're talking about canadians that could really rile up people who uh, are flying the flag as a symbol of protest who feel as though they're equally if not more so canadian than someone else so i think it's it's a real problem from like a flag and a symbol being used as a sign of national identity and and like this connective tissue to a badge of honor to a sign that someone has more membership privileges than somebody else. And I I think uh, there's a real danger in like one discourse trumping the other discourse. Uh, Yeah, actually, pun unintended, but take it for what you (laughs) will. Uh,
0: you can go to the uh, Brock University webpage, by the way, brocku.ca uh, slash brocknews, and uh, you can read the whole article.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: More trouble as uh, G7 leaders yesterday pledged their undying support uh, to President Zelensky and the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, rescue efforts continued following a Russian missile strike on a crowded shopping center in central Ukraine. Charles de has details.
2: Emergency teams are searching through the charred rubble of the shopping mall in Kremenchuk for more victims of the Russian strike. The regional governor says at least 18 people have been killed. Emergency services report more than 60 wounded. The UN Security Council has scheduled an emergency meeting to discuss the attack. The hit coincides with Russia's all-out assault on the last Ukrainian stronghold in eastern Ukraine's Luhansk province. while four Forces also pummel other Ukrainian cities. I'm Charles de Ledesma.
0: Uh, As we've been reporting in the last little while, it seems as if uh, Russian forces are now starting to concentrate on the large cities once again. Matthew Best, a freelance journalist for the Globe and Mail and the Iowa Citizen, is in Ukraine. Uh, First of all, Matthew, thank you for the time today. I hope you're staying safe. It's uh, it's getting pretty close to uh, seeing. Some of the missile attacks and you were in Kiev uh, the other day uh, and saw uh, the, the devastation of a residential building in a kindergarten that said uh, that had been bombed on Sunday.
1: Uh that's right. Um the devastation of those attacks was uh extremely graphic. Um as as I watched uh Rescue operations at the apartment building, Uh, firefighters were walking the broken roofs and rescue crews were shoveling debris out of the apartments. Uh, A woman was taken out, a Russian woman actually, her name was Ekaterina Volkova. Uh, She's a Russian woman with a a Ukrainian husband. Uh, Her husband was still lost among the rubble and rescuers were able to pull the woman out as well as her seven-year-old daughter as they were transported to hospital in critical condition uh, as I was standing there the ukrainian officials sort of use that to emphasize that you know this these attacks on on civilian targets uh weren't just engaging in a war on ukrainians or on ukraine they, russia was in fact engaging in aggression on its own citizens very thankfully it being sunday the day of that attack here in kiev um the the kindergarten had no students in it but the uh, seeing the school pockmarked with shrapnel and the impact craters flooded with water in the yard uh close to the playground where children play is, is quite a heart-wrenching scene
0: was this to be expected I, mean, I can remember a conversation with you some weeks ago now when they announced of course a, a new head of, uh, of military operations the russians did anyway in ukraine uh, a gentleman with a, a horrific reputation of course uh, uh they call him a butcher i think is uh, the nickname that he'd been coined but, but there seems to be a, a, a quite an emphasis as you said now on civilian targets uh, that, as, as the United Nations commented yesterday, have no military value at all. If, in fact, you, know, you were going to try to categorize them in that fashion, they, they simply just try to terrorize and kill people.
1: That's certainly what it looks like over here. Um, and this comes at a time not just when the leadership of the Russian military in Ukraine has changed, but as the world starts to step up its sanctions with the meeting of the G7 leaders, uh, with uh, price caps on... Uh, Russian petrochemical exports and these kinds of things coming in. This seems to be a level of, uh, I would say, saber rattling. But at this point, it's using the saber to, to cut the people of Ukraine. Uh, this seems to be extremely retaliatory to the continued political posturing uh, of the West and of the world against Russia's uh, ongoing war. Is is there any
0: feeling right now that uh, that the G seven can? do much more than they are doing right now. They pledged support again, of course, in their final communique before they all took off for Spain uh, earlier today. Uh, And and I know President Biden uh, has made a commitment for some, uh, I believe, land-to-air missile uh, capabilities, uh, which certainly could come in handy in situations like that. But is it enough? I mean, you know, I I think a lot of us are getting the feeling back here that this, this is great what these people are saying, but it seems to be too little too late when you look at the damage that's being done in spite of all that help.
1: One of the things that's kind of coming across here is that this may settle into another kind of forever war, that this might be uh, another uh, Afghanistan for Russia or a Vietnam uh, as it was for, for the United States, uh, and that this is gonna be an ongoing sort of proxy wars as these sort of arms triple in, uh, trickle into the country. Uh, things like HIMARS and and the uh, AMRAMs, the surface-to-air missiles for the air defense, um, they're certainly helpful but it it is just sort of keeping this uh kind of resuscitative action for the ukrainian military going they obviously and we know that ukrainians have been asking for more and more uh since day one uh, because as far as they're concerned, they are involved in World War III, and as far as the rest of the world is concerned, they're trying to stop getting involved uh, in in World War III. But we've also seen reports coming out uh, that uh, Canadian-American uh, French Special Forces are here, German Special Forces are here actively training these people. I don't really know the veracity of that, because oftentimes, as these uh, reports trickle out, oftentimes what you'll find is that they're really training people over the border in Poland, or teaching them to use weapons, or you know having people uh, engage in joint training, but the question of how much uh, the rest of the world is actually stepping up the support is still in this sort of limbo here, where, of course, the Ukrainians, as you said uh, before many times, we've said in our discussions, simply don't feel that it's enough. Uh, the question of whether or not the ongoing sanctions are going to work we know that Russia's sort of defaulted on its debt for the first time, in what I understand to be over 100 years, and that's certainly going to put a pinch on it. Um, but it's, it's really hard to say that. You know that's going to have a, de- a detrimental effect in the short term. That's really going to kind of shut down this level of aggression.
0: Well, there's a, a kind of a, a back and forth going on here, isn't there? Every time NATO and/or the G7, in that particular case, uh increase sanctions, uh, the Russians seem to get more, you know, ramped up. I guess when it comes to civilian attacks and things of this nature. I mean, uh, there's. there's seemingly a correlation here between those announcements and and, you know, bombing schools, bombing shopping malls, places like that, that they know that they're going to cause maximum damage and loss of
1: life. Uh, I think it's at a point with Russia now where this is almost their attitude, where there's a kind of to hell with it" attitude. Uh, We don't need to care about what the world thinks. Let's go all in. Let's get the Ukrainians to capitulate. We know that Zelensky said that, you know, there's going to be no ceding of ground, uh, not an inch given of Ukrainian territory uh, will be given over in any kind of peace negotiations. And it seems to be as that pressure increases, the desire is to, as we know, shift away from any kind of uh, northern offensive around Kiev, uh, move into the east, uh, take those oblasts, and uh, I think terrorize the Ukrainian people into uh, giving up and, and taking a, a a kind of second piece where they'll seed crimea and seed uh, the donbass finally once and for all
0: uh nato of course has responded to the latest when i'm as, as you've been reporting uh they've uh, committed now to expand the alliance's rapid reaction force as a part of the response to this uh, era strategic competition uh, what can they do from a, a troop standpoint at this stage uh, matthew uh, you, you mentioned training uh, what does that entail i mean is there something tangible that you can see where they're, they're making a difference
1: well i mean training a lot of the times will involve you know getting the ukrainians up to snuff on western weapons that are coming in ukraine of course being a, a former soviet country and a, a former soviet republic in its own right often has the you know ak's as opposed to uh m4s or something similar they have uh sort of soviet heritage artillery and soviet heritage tanks and they need to be brought up to stuff on the weapons that are coming in uh like the leopard twos and uh and the Heimar systems that they need to use other training that's often gone on with ukraine as they've uh, gotten closer to europe and to the west is joint training so they have interoperability uh with other nations troops as they're expected to go and join a kind of european common defense pool or uh perhaps eventually NATO, as they've often wanted to do. That's the level of training that we know has gone on. Um, other kinds of training that might be happening, that certainly might be happening, as we've heard of Special Operations Forces coming in here, would involve getting their commandos to sort of up their level, up the, up the game of sneaky stuff they can do, the sort of maybe pushing into uh, areas behind the lines, engaging in sabotage, engaging in sort of line destruction in terms of nato standing up troops and actually engaging in a sort of either friendly invasion of ukraine to bolster their support or en- engaging in, in russian forces directly i don't think we're going to see that um not certainly unless russia escalates further but i think uh, nato is is not at a point where seeing a shopping mall destroyed or seeing apartment buildings destroyed they're ready to fully engage uh, russian troops i think that would drag the entire world into a war
0: as you uh reported to us a couple of weeks ago uh- from the Russian standpoint, uh, they seem to be running into some problems. They don't talk about it much, but as, as you told us, uh, a lot of their equipment has been damaged or destroyed totally, of course, because of, of the battles. The casualty list, I guess, is, is up for speculation right now, but we know that they've suffered a great deal of casualties. Now there's a rumor uh, that they may be calling up reservists just to fill those those spots, uh, which is going to have, I would think, certainly ramifications in Ukraine. But even in, in Moscow, I mean... Uh, not everybody's behind this war. They don't want to see their sons or daughters caught up and in getting into this conflict. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, I guess a, a game that Putin is willing to play at this stage. Uh, but at the same time you have to wonder about the voices of discontent within Russia that are going to say, look, enough is enough.
1: We've seen those voices and we've seen the repercussions that they've suffered for standing up. We've seen, uh, even early in the war months ago, um, protesters pulled out of uh, the squares in front of the Kremlin for holding imaginary signs because they dare not write their actual thoughts down. Um, it's it's very difficult to sort of gauge uh, the, the temperature on the street in Moscow where we can say it's going to reach a breaking point and they're not going to be able to uh, keep those voices of dissent silent longer. Uh, I know the popular statistic that gets thrown around is 71% of Russians support the war and that of course means there's you know uh, nearly 30 percent who don't um and if that 30 percent is going to start to shift more towards 50 percent, and eventually a kind of majoritarian um voice of discontent where they might start a uh, kind of a, an uprising or a mass protest that may happen when it's hard to say the news that comes out of russia under state controlled media is of course so um well state controlled uh, that really getting the sense of of when it's going to reach up breaking point is impossible. But we do see uh, that shift in, in activating guard units and reserve units. We've also seen it with the officers, where old uh, officers clearly out of shape are being brought back in to try to fill the gaps with the colonels and who have died and, and other officers that need replacing. And uh, at, a, at a certain point, we have to figure that the level of attrition is going to take its toll on Russia. And we know they have drawn back from the fronts because of that.
0: Matthew, just a minute or a minute and a half left here in the conversation here. Uh, what about the resolve of the Ukrainian people? As you, as you look at the bomb site there on Sunday and you saw walking over the rubble and the, and the rescue attempts or the uh, attempts to try to find bodies, uh, depending on the severity of where the, those missiles landed. Are they saying enough is enough or are they just does this make them more angry?
1: I've they certainly get angrier. I've not seen a shift in in the mood on the street here in Kyiv uh, or elsewhere in Ukraine where the people are going to break. They still go about their day and part of what's uh, really frightening about that is now that the target uh, the civilian targets are ramping up. That actually tends to put them in danger. Uh, but they aren't wavering at all. The morale here is uh, virtually unshakable. Remarkable stories.
0: Uh, and Thank you so much for the time today. Stay safe, please, Matthew, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, talk again in the next couple of days. Appreciate it today, though.
1: Thank you. Talk to you soon.
0: You bet. Matthew is, of course, uh, in Ukraine right now and witnessing some of the uh, atrocities are going on there with the missile attacks on civilian properties. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A housing crisis, and it is a crisis uh, that we've been talking about for the last little while. Uh, It was a key part of the provincial election here in Ontario just a few weeks ago. Uh, Federal government uh, has been trying to work on solutions to this. I mean, we just talked to agencies. We've talked to real estate people about this, about what's going on here, why the price is skyrocketing. Uh, Then all of a sudden, the Bank of Canada gets involved and starts raising interest rates. And you have to wonder about affordability and availability uh, for first-time buyers and for everybody in the housing market. Let's face it, eventually that's going to be all of us, isn't it? Uh, Everybody wants a roof over their head. But there's a supply gap that's a problem here uh well cmhc has done some research on this and uh, they've done some number crunching and uh there's some numbers here that i think we need to be aware of uh and certainly i think governments need to be aware of uh, about exactly where we are and, and the headline here i suppose is that uh, canada mortgage and housing corporation cmhc uh says 3.5 million more homes need to be built by 2030 to reach what they call affordability and that's a, a basically a, a formula uh, that they 're following and developing, uh, but there are a couple of other numbers here I think that might be confusing to some people and and this is what we wanted to get some clarification on here today uh, when you see that number here that says uh, three point five million uh, and you juxtapose that with uh, the current numbers that we're getting from the government, they said the housing stock is expected to increase by two point three million you figure oh well, wait a second that, that 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 what about the three point five you add it on top of this and and that's yeah. So in other words, we're really talking about many, many more houses like uh, to, to come into situations like that. So it's actually, could it be as high as 5.8 or 7, depending on exactly where we're looking. To try I get some clarity on all of these numbers? Please do welcome to the program, Al, W who's who's uh, Deputy Chief Economist for the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation. Uh, Al, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you. Uh, the, the numbers here are staggering, and, and I guess that was one of the critical elements of, of the discussion uh about uh, exactly where we need to be and and building because we've talked to so many people in the business right now that say look it supplies the big concern here but when you see that 3.5 million uh that's an, an addition isn't it on top of the 2.2 uh that they're already forecasting so we're the actual number here i guess uh according to the numbers that we've seen from the report here is they say we need about 5.7 million uh new builds uh, in the next uh, few years to try to get up to speed on this uh, how how doable is something like that? Well, that's exactly the right question. Uh, what we're hoping
3: with this report is that we could move away from the debate. is it supply? Is it demand? How much supply do we need? Just get away from all of that debate and say, okay, if we're serious about increasing uh, affordability, how do we get there? How much housing supply do we need? But really, how do we get it done? So the, this is the key question. How do we get it done? Um and I, I, it is going to be hard. Uh, that's why the report is saying we need the government to change things. We need the construction sector. We need the developers. Everybody needs to get together to improve this. Uh, there's a lot of work to
0: done to be done. It is extremely hard. Well, as I've known anecdotally over the last little while, talking to people in the construction industry, for instance, and I know you guys do that on a regular basis. Uh, you know, if if I just said, "Look, I got a piece of land. I got all my approvals. Uh, build me a house over here." I know the first thing you're going to say to me is, I, I can't get any help. Uh, there's, uh, I can't get a plumber. I can't get a framer. I can't get any, any of this stuff. Uh, we just don't have enough people in the workforce right now to, to do this, even if we wanted to uh, make that a combination of 5.7 million.
3: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and there are all sorts of supply um, problems. So uh, that's why I think we need a long-term strategy. This is not going to be done overnight, but we need to put in place mechanisms to improve productivity, to improve efficiency. Um, to get the skills level up, to invest in training. Um, it just this is going to take time. It's not a switch that can be thrown
0: overnight. In a a circumstance like that, uh, is is everybody on the same page? Do we understand that? I mean, because there used to be some debate uh, just a few months ago, I know, about supply and demand. And, well, it's not just a supply issue. Uh, But isn't that economics 101, that, that if there's only one house and 10 people want it, uh, the price is going to go up, I and mean, that's how we got bidding wars. So we we do need more product, don't we? Oh,
3: absolutely. I mean, it's basic economics. If demand goes up and prices go up, that means something is not working on the supply side. So basic economics is supply and demand. It's not supply or demand. We we, we need to tackle both. So uh, well, let's let's
0: talk about the government approach to this because ultimately they're the ones that feel as if they've got the handle on this. And even in the federal budget, uh, and we heard the same story from the Ontario budget, of course, during the provincial election here in Ontario uh, just a few weeks ago, housing starts. We know we're going to guarantee some of the housing starts. Uh, the reality here, I guess, is if they don't put, as you said, the support infrastructure in place for any of this stuff, Alan, uh, they're not going to get those housing starts. I mean, they they haven't given the industry the tools to, to actually get this done, have they?
3: That's right. There's a lot of issues at stake here. I mean, you've already talked about skills, et cetera, but but I think there are a whole range of issues tied to governance of approval processes and how to get those um, faster, more efficient, um, more digital use. There's just a whole range here of governance issues and putting the right policy infrastructure in place. Uh, This is across all orders of government.
0: And that has to be coordinated, doesn't it, between provincial and municipal governments especially, because that's where a lot of the planning for this goes. Yeah, exactly. That's where the bulk
3: of the uh, activity will be. The federal government can play a supportive role. Um, More funds can be generated um, or transferred. Uh, I'm particularly keen on the Housing Accelerator Fund uh, that is aiming at helping uh, municipalities to improve their systems to get more housing supply going, so the federal government can play a role, but but it's mostly
0: uh, within the municipal and provincial governments. And how is that coordination these days? I mean, there's this concern about the appeals process, about planning, about zoning issues, uh, and and you want it to be democratic. I think we all understand that, but at the same time, uh, you know, going through that process, as you mentioned, uh, can be a very frustrating and time-consuming exercise.
3: Right. I mean, we were hearing that that time delay is taking many, many years. So, that, you know, we're, we're trying to get affordability by 2030. And when the um, time horizon for the the approval process is already three to five years or whatever, um, it, it's already going to be a struggle. So um, that's why we're really trying to emphasize this is everybody working together to improve efficiency in the regulatory processes.
0: What about the debate that's raging right now in many municipalities? Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, we need to build. Uh, but I guess the question a lot of them are not answering these days is what are we building? Uh, you know, what kind of housing are we building? You know, uh, because there is a market uh, aspect of this, too. isn't there really, you, know, if you want to see something. You know, you've got a, 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 a picture in your mind of what you want to see. Uh, some people it might be condos. Some people it might be townhouses. Some people say, look, I want, I, I want a backyard. I want a place for my kids to play. You know, the, So the, 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 you can't just say, okay, we're going to do it right here. There's a great deal of planning, and, and I guess uh, probably some sort of research to determine exactly what we need to buy and maybe what we want to buy and see if there's any middle ground there.
3: Right, exactly, and that's the next phase of our research is really trying to see, well, w- what sort of buildings is will get us faster to affordability? All new supply is helpful, but maybe there's a particular type of new supply that would be uh, helpful in particular. So, for example... Um, Is it possible to build apartments with more internal living space um, that people would actually prefer to a single detached housing? We're we're hearing stories that what people value is internal space in a house, not necessarily having a lot of yard. I I don't know if this is true, but but this is some of the stories that we're hearing. So it's building more of the housing that people want, but that they can also afford and probably build that at density. So um, we're not that, we're not really talking about more single detached with large lots in in the suburbs, but it's more what do people really want and value for them, their families, and perhaps their growing families. Are are there enough three bedroom apartments, for example? Yeah, exactly. And and as
0: you say, there has to be, I guess, a different mindset here too. Uh, I, I know in the Hamilton area years ago uh, when I was on city council, I mean, they had some large lots, six, sometimes 60, 75 feet wide. You know, the neighbors were saying, well, if you're going to build here, you've got to build them just like those. So say, not, we're not building 75 lots anymore. Uh, it just yeah, doesn't I, happen. Yeah. We've learned that land is precious, haven't we?
3: Yeah, and so on, on land prices are going up and up as demand for housing goes up. So as the price of land goes up, um, so does density. It has to go up that's the way um, builders can make a, a profit on the
0: land. And it, it is some sort of market after all. And it's going to vary. Uh, this can't be a one-size-fits-all, can it? Because different communities are going to have different needs.
3: I Absolutely, and across different income categories. So yeah. what we're talking about in this report is w- what would make the – um, housing affordable to an average, uh, a household with average income. But clearly, there are a lot of affordability challenges for low-income households. And in that case, we may need to construct more social housing or um, particular type of, of subsidized housing. So um, we need across-the-board increase in supply, but um, clearly there there are nuances not only across income uh, categories but also across the country.
0: Can you comment, if you could, uh about the the bank of canada role in this and and what they're doing uh you know we've we've heard from the governor of course talking about you know, the the concern about inflation and it, it's a legitimate concern as we all know uh but they feel as if their role to play here and it has been historically their role to play here is to is to raise the, the interest rates and and to cool off the market i think is the phrase they keep using in situations like that but what does that do to the affordability issue
3: this is complicated uh, in practice um on the one hand it will cool down demand i mean people have to will have to pay more for their mortgages and therefore uh they may be uh, staying in rental property uh, for a longer period and, and it'll cool demand for the home ownership market um so demand will will reduce the other challenge though is on the construction side uh the cost of financing Uh, For development will likely go up and so this puts downward pressure on supply uh, in the short term so So the The role of supply has to be borne in mind in in, and the impact of interest rates on that And then another nuance in in what I just said is people will stay in rental um, and vacancy rates in rental are extremely low, rents are increasing, so there are challenges in the rental sector as well, and we need a lot more supply of
0: rental units. Yeah, and, and again, it's the old action and reaction situation here, because I know uh, it was reversed about 10, 15 years ago, and an awful lot of rental properties were converted into condos, because that was the rage, that's what everybody wanted. Now we find ourselves, uh, as soon as you mess with the system, I guess, all of a sudden now we we're having a problem with rental stock, and that has to be addressed. But the affordability issue is something that I think is is something that hits home with an awful lot of people. Uh, You know, when interest rates go up like that, uh, it's fine to say, okay, the market is cooling off. But when somebody finally feels as if they're ready to jump into the market and the interest rates are high or higher than they have been anyway, uh, that can be detrimental. I mean, because at that point, you may be looking at just say, okay, can I afford the monthly payments? And for an awful lot of families right now, the answer is no. Right. Uh, And that's
3: Uh, that's a major concern because of the high debt levels that a lot of homeowners have. Um, so this is, again, why we need to cool down the housing market, cool down housing price growth, uh, and get more affordability because the debt that households have to take on in order to get into the housing market is really high
0: and is pl- placing the whole economy at risk. Well, and it's, it's causing some some side effects to this, too, that we need to keep in mind. Uh, quite aside from the idea of getting a roof over your head and, and you uh, at CMHC looking at the economics of this, uh, what we've noticed, and I know you guys have done reports on this and studies on this, is a migration. Uh, I, I, Ontario and B.C., I guess, are the, the two worst provinces for affordability, uh, and people are gravitating. They're going to Alberta, they're going to the Maritimes and saying, I'm going to live here. Well, th- that's that's a brain drain, first of all, and it's also those are the people that you may need for skilled trade jobs to do the building here in ontario so we're really kind of working across purposes here are we absolutely
3: and this is why we really need particularly in ontario, in ontario and bc to get a house price affordability just housing costs are really deterring people from staying or moving to the province and that's not just low-income people i mean it's difficult to attract people with high skills that are in good paying job because housing costs um, are so high and it, it's really deterring growth in the gta the greater golden horseshoe uh, and people are likely starting to move to
0: quebec the maritimes as you said on uh, um, Alberta. well and we've seen the pattern of you know as, as one guy from the real estate industry told us on the program a couple of weeks ago he, you can track it right down to 401 you know from the gta uh it used to be down around cambridge guelph and, and that area it, it now it's extended down to london uh, where people are just saying it's, it's uh, well, as Tim Hudak from the Realtors Association told us, I guess the mantra now is drive till you can buy, uh, and and right now they're driving all the way up to Halifax uh, just because of an affordability issue. But those people aren't going to say, oh, the market's cooled off and going back to Ontario now. Once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah, exactly. Especially during with the COVID
3: pandemic and the technology advances that enabled everybody to work from home, so people. I think are really sick of commuting. Uh, they're sick of high house prices, and they just say, "Fine, I'll but I'll move to somewhere with low housing costs and work from home and just do away with all these problems of housing costs and commuting." Are you comfortable
0: with the 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 period of growth here that's supposed to be occurring? That we're going to at- attain these goals? I mean, as you say, it's a, it's a very very difficult exercise. Uh, to figure that we're going to get about 6 million new builds out there in the next seven years or so. Uh, But do they understand, does the industry understand, and more importantly the government understand, the urgency of this, that it's just no matter, hey, it'd be nice if this can get done, it has to get done.
3: That's a tough question to answer. Um, We hear a lot of complaints about housing costs, but it's not always clear that a lot of action is taken to uh, actually, do it. Do something. Uh, that's why I put that line in the report. That what we need is more housing supply, and not more reports. It's just that—that uh, that is what we really need to concentrate on now: is how to get this done. Who can get this done? Um, because it's really becoming quite a major problem for Canada.
0: Well, you know, in your experience, governments are really good at writing reports, not so good always at action. So. Uh, I guess you know you're, you're going to have to change that mindset in Ottawa and in Queens Park. I, I suppose to see any success there, uh, but they're getting pressure. I mean, you know, politicians get pressure from the building industry, certainly, uh, from the banks. Uh, but at the same time, uh, people that are already there in the market, they maybe own real estate right now, are complaining about uh, you know cooling off the market means they're going to lose equity in their house, and that can be a problem for people that were counting on that equity. Uh, for somewhere down the road right now. And uh, so they're they're getting it from all sides here, aren't they?
3: Yeah, it's just um, the whole system seems to be becoming a little bit of a mess. Um, um, uh, It's really difficult to know where it will go. Um, But certainly the risks of house prices continuing to rise, um, the lack of affordability that we have, these seem to be the major challenges, um our response is: we just really need more housing supply.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I want to thank you uh, for doing the report. First of all, I mean it's it's an eye opener, but it's uh, maybe it's not the stuff we want to hear, but it's the stuff we need to hear right now to try to address this problem. And uh, thank you as well, obviously, for joining us on the program today and explaining all of this, uh, Alan, We really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you, Bill. Take care. By uh, Alan Abuworth, who's a uh, deputy chief economist at uh, CMHC, uh, giving us, uh, well, the reality of it, I guess, you know, that we need about 6 million new starts, uh, new houses, and that's within the next seven years. It's doable as long as we get everybody working on side right now and it's kind of across cross purposes, and uh, we're not there yet. So, assuming that we get the shovel in the ground and get these things built. Uh, the better we can start to see a light at the end of the tunnel.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. So you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.